This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. The indictment of the Trump Organization and its longtime accountant, Alan Weisselberg, may have been the first charges handed down by the Manhattan DA, but Donald Trump's children may be the next juicy target, and their loyalty is far less than assured. The question of the hour remains whether they'll turn on the Donald to save their own skins. And if I know anything about this awful fucking family, the answer will be a resounding yes. This is a modern Shakespeare for the ages, folks. Trump raging into the storm as his children plot his destruction. And I, for one, can't wait for the treachery to begin. Never has there been a more deserving target of a child's scorn than Donald J. Trump. We turn now to the latest on the Trump Organization indictment and new questions surrounding the former president's children. There will be other people who might be more willing to flip than Alan, um, and I think among those might well indeed be my cousins. Let's look at the facts. Prosecutors say the seven companies, along with unnamed Trump entities, exhibited a pattern of paying a substantial portion of year-end bonuses to Weisselberg and other executives as if they weren't employees but independent contractors. Prosecutors also claim the companies and executives knew the practice was wrong and the amounts appear to be substantial. For instance, Weisselberg allegedly broke the law by putting hundreds of thousands of dollars in bonus money in a tax-free pension plan. The Washington Post reporting that internal spreadsheets kept by the Trump organization that tallied the hidden payments provided a roadmap for prosecutors. Prosecutors treating these spreadsheets as, quote, the accounting equivalent of a confession. But experts say that the arrangement also implicates the companies and possibly the executives who ran them. That could spell major trouble for Trump's children who are attached to a dizzying array of Trump entities, many of which were named in the indictment. Uh, It's pretty likely that they're going to you know, plead uh, ignorance, right? Take the ostrich defense, say their heads were in the sand, that they were not involved with the, the day-to-day calls, the, you know, the actual uh, dispensation of the salaries. Legal experts are now pointing to former first daughter and advisor to the president, Ivanka Trump, as the next member of the inner circle who should be very concerned. Like Alan Weisselberg, Ivanka Trump was reportedly paid consulting fees by the Trump org while she was an active employee there, and that could open her up to possible tax fraud charges as well. While I'm not privy to what the Manhattan DA will or won't charge, I can't tell you how intricately involved the Trump children were in every aspect of the business. Not only that, part of my job was cleaning up the inevitable messes created by his near-do-well spawn of imbeciles. Not a week would go by that Trump didn't have me stepping in to mop up around Erica Don Jr. They had what you would call a brown thumb. Everything they touched turned to shit. I am surrounded by snakes and fucking morons. Meeting over. Fuck off. But like everything in the company, the official relationships between Trump's children and the various entities of the family business are blurry. We don't take titles particularly seriously at the Trump Organization, Ivanka said in a 2016 deposition. Incorporation documents don't list any principles other than Donald Trump until he handed his business administration to his children after assuming the White House in 2017. But his children have long been closely involved with operations. 
and Ivanka's financial disclosures revealed she'd held executive positions at dozens of Trump entities, including at Mar-a-Lago, which is listed in the indictment. And the key is that Trump, the Trump organization is the holding company, right? And then there are about two or three hundred LLCs that are all these subsidiaries. Each one runs a particular business. So the, the ones that were identified in the indictment and that Roger wrote about, uh, those are all LLCs, each of which probably, each of which managed one uh, property uh, or one business and then had, you know, at most a couple hundred employees in each of those businesses. So each of these things was basically treated as just another division of the Trump organization, even though it was supposed to technically be a separate company. And we actually got a ruling in the Trump University case. We sued the Trump organization and we sued Donald Trump in our case. And we did get an intermediate ruling in that case that said that the Trump organization and Donald Trump were liable for Trump University's misdeeds. So that even though Trump University was broke, Trump Org and Donald Trump were still going to have to pay up personally. Ivanka's financial disclosures show that from 2009 to 2017, she was vice president of one of the companies named in the indictment, Trump Las Vegas Development LLC. According to federal documents, that company was established to collect development fees on Trump Ruffin Tower, a combination hotel condo building in Las Vegas. But those disclosures also show the company's underlying value isn't clear, and its income has swung wildly. The business posted no income at all in 2014 and 2015, then hauled $8.1 million in 2016 before reporting no income again in 2017, the year Ivanka left the company. It pulled in a little over $3 million annually for the next two years, then went dormant. Hmm? Really? Something smell fishy to you? It fucking should. Ivanka is a Trump, and a Trump is a Trump, no matter how softly they speak. Which means, like her father, Princess Ivanka, lies like she fucking breathes. I've certainly heard the criticism from the media, and... Um, that's been perpetuated. In a deposition earlier this year related to the investigation into inaugural malfeasance, Ivanka Trump appeared to perjure herself by claiming she did not know Weisselberg telling investigators she wasn't familiar with her family's company's CFO, suggesting she was unaware of his responsibilities. He is the, uh, I would have to see what his, uh, I don't know his exact title, but, uh, he's an executive at the company, she said. That because of the pervasive scheme, and because we've known since November of 2020, that she has this issue about payments. And the issue is this. At some point in 2017, she was paid $2.2 million from Trump organization. And also, there is a question of whether or not she got $750,000 in consulting fees. Here's the way the IRS works. Either you are an employee or you are an independent contractor. And you are not both. Correct. So uh, somebody, I'm sure, some brilliant tax person in the New York DA's office is looking at this issue with a laser focus. And it seems to me a logical place for them to be looking. But some of the companies listed in the indictment also bear connections to Eric Trump and Donald Trump Jr. as well. For instance... Trump CPS LLC reportedly cut Eric a sweetheart deal on a condo purchase in April of 2016. 
The indictment also names two golf courses, a corporate vertical that largely falls under Don Jr. Christ, that's a fucking frightening prospect. The best is yet to come. One of those two golf courses, Trump National Golf Course in Los Angeles, happens to be under investigation by Letitia James's office for possible tax fraud. Prosecutors also called out Trump Productions, LLC, the ex-president's media company, which produced the Trump-hosted game show, The Apprentice. But Eric and Don Trump Jr. served as advisors on that series. You're fired. You're fired. You're fired. You're fired. You're fired. You're fired. While I can't claim to truly know that any of the Trump children, they are as unknowable as their famously disturbed father, I have spent enough time in their midst as they grovel before their dad to know that despite the seemingly closeness of the clan, that they fucking load their father in no uncertain terms. I can't tell you how many times I sat in the boss's office as he fucking humiliated Eric or Don in a room full of people calling them fucking morons to their faces. You are uh fucking idiot. At the same time, neither Eric or Don Jr. ever wanted anything to do with their father's business. Don was a bartender in Montana until his father forced him to come home. The money is a means of control. Trump likes that they need and depend on him for his approval, their livelihood, everything. None of them knew Trump as children. They were raised by nannies and under the stern eye of Ivana, who kept them far away from their dysfunction and messiness of his tabloid life. It's only recently that he lured them back into his orbit in the way that a mafia don knows that he can rely on his family. But in Trump's case, he wasn't blessed with a Michael or Sonny Corleone. He got all fucking Fredos. I can handle things. I'm smart. Not like everybody says. Then there's Ivanka, who despite being the apple of her father's eye and grist of all manner of creepy, ancestral rumors, is just as mercenary as her father and still believes she has a political future of her own, independent from her father. This is a contractual relationship based on control and money and nothing more. Donald Trump raised his kids to put themselves first. And so we might see Ivanka reminding him, uh, reminding uh, Trump of his own favorite advice. You know, it's nothing personal, it's just business. Mary Trump, who has spent her life with a front row seat to all manner of family dysfunction, echoed this assertion last week on Rachel Maddow. That I don't believe my cousins would exert that kind of, exercise that kind of loyalty towards him because his relationship with them and their relationship with him is entirely transactional. So, um, and conditional, I should say. So they're not gonna risk anything for him, just as he wouldn't risk anything for them. But my money is squarely on Ivanka. Indeed, she already seems to be distancing herself strategically from her no longer particularly useful father. A couple of weeks ago, for example, there were reports that Trump's complaints about the stolen 2020 election were driving fucking Jared and Ivanka from the Donald. New this morning, increasingly strained relationships within the Trump family. This is a fascinating story. CNN learning that the two people closest to the former president during his time in office, Ivanka and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, 
they actually have been distancing themselves from Trump and his constant grievances about the, quote, stolen election. These reported leaks about Javanka, as they are now known derisively, are now phenomena. They happen frequently throughout Trump's presidency and were generally leaked by the couple themselves as a fucking PR ploy to remain in the good graces of their liberal New York friends. Every man knows her name. Every woman knows her face. When she walks into a room, all eyes are on her. She's Ivanka. And a woman like her deserves a fragrance all her own. A scent made just for her. Because she's beautiful. She's powerful. She's complicit. She's a woman who knows what she wants and knows what she's doing. Complicit. She doesn't crave the spotlight, but we see her. Oh, how we see her. Complicit. A feminist, an advocate, a champion for women. But, like, how? She's loyal, devoted, but probably should have bounced after the whole excess Hollywood bust thing. Oh, well. Also, I bet when she watches Titanic, she thinks she's Rose. Sorry, girl. You're Billy Zane. Complicit. The fragrance for the woman who could stop all this, but won't. While Ivanka appears to be coolly controlling her own narrative behind the scenes... Don Jr. and Eric reacted to the Trump Organization criminal charges in the manner best suited to their dipshit status with complete and total fucking incompetence. Eric's on-camera histrionics seem almost scripted in their insanity. They're afraid that my father is going to run in 2024, and they're afraid that he's going to win. So they don't look at corrupt Hunter Biden. They don't look at the fact that he's taking money from China and the Ukraine and other mm. countries, and he's you know selling his finger paintings for $500,000 to undisclosed people. No, they don't care about any of that. They care about going after innocent, great human beings. Alan Weisselberg is, is, is one of them, and taking out Donald Trump and going after a political opponent. Meanwhile, Don Jr. posted a 13-minute video on Facebook calling the charges against his dad Banana Republic stuff. He also dimly acknowledged that the allegations Trump paid for Weisselberg's grandchildren's school fees were true. My dad did that, he said, because he is a good guy. My father, after almost 50 years of employment, paid for his grandkids' private school in New York City. My dad did that because he's a good guy. Takes care of his employees. A good guy who probably wishes he raised kids who weren't so fucking stupid. But that's the least of their problems now. If the choice is going to prison or flipping on a man who has caused them a lifetime of grief and trouble, I don't care how loud they protest on camera. At least one of them, if charged, will turn on their father. Hasta la vista, fucking baby.
And now for the main event. My next guest on Mea Culpa is Politico's Renato Mariotti, a former federal prosecutor turned legal analyst. Mariotti emerged in the Trump era as a true, no bullshit voice for decoding the meaning and intent of Trump's often indecipherable statements. He can be seen on Anderson Cooper 360 and is a fill-in host for Chicago's WGN-TV. But it's his columns for Politico deconstructing the criminal intent of Donald Trump and his many co-conspirators that have left the biggest mark. Nowadays, he also hosts the On Topic podcast discussing legal affairs. He joins me today on Mea Culpa as we look towards where the Manhattan DA's indictment could head next and whether the Trump children will become ensnared and much, much more. So let's listen now to that conversation. So, Renato, yesterday, Michael Bender of the Wall Street Journal released an incredible account of Trump's final days in office with information about how Secretary of State Mike Pompeo feared that Trump would start an international conflict to justify staying in office. Had such a moment occurred, we would have found ourselves in a true constitutional nightmare beyond where we currently find ourselves even today. I'm curious from your perspective if you've read the latest Wall Street Journal story and what you make of these revelations. You know, I just read that this morning, Michael. Uh, glad you asked about that. It, you know, what re- really surprised me also, I, I was also struck by how Mike Pence was treated in those final uh, those final days and uh, and so forth by Trump. It's interesting to me how much all the people around Trump not only were like enabling him, but they were almost pussyfooting around him, scared of him, so to speak. Um, they were uh, afraid to confront him and they were trying to cover for him. There's this effort. It's almost like Weekend at Bernie's where you've got the guy who's dead and you're trying to prop him up. Uh, they're trying so hard to keep up some illusion that this guy's got it together. No one was willing to come out and say what really happened, say the truth. I mean, if Mike Pompeo is concerned, why wasn't he telling Congress? Why wasn't he telling the American people? It's it's it what's alarming to me is more what was kept uh, away from us as as the public more than just what was happening with Trump, who, who we already knew, I think, was pretty unstable. Well, because Mike Pompeo is full of shit, because <laughs> unlike because unlike people like, look, I did the same thing. I created the illusion of Donald Trump. You remember early on, you know, I I know you weren't a great big fan of mine. That's certainly for sure. You know, watching the segments on CNN and others, right? Um, You know, we all did the same thing. That was our job. Create the illusion of Donald Trump's intelligence, his capabilities, his financial wealth, and all of this. And if you didn't, it wasn't so much fear of being outed. It really was a fear of losing your job and sort of being excommunicated from this cult of Donald Trump. So when they talk about whether it's um, Mike Pompeo, who had all of this information, and you're right, did not take it to Congress, despite the fact he probably should have, the same thing holds true with Mike Pence. And now all of a sudden, Mike Pence is growing a pair of balls. And Mike Pence is turning and saying, well, Donald threw paper at me. Be thankful he didn't throw the fucking phone at you, 
right? Because Mike, P- Mike Pence is like just Mike Putz. I mean, there's really just nothing that was going on there. He thought he was going to come in, that Donald was going to give him a job greater than what any other vice president has really held. And very quickly, Trump realized that Pence was not capable. And so other than Mike Pence constantly flattering Donald, Right. Whether it was like at a CPAC or some other sort of a convention, he really didn't have much use for him. I think that's what the article was really kind of trying to say. I I was I was taken by the way in which Pence, who was clearly very frantic behind the scenes, uh, said and did nothing, uh, given the way he was treated. I mean, he could have been, Michael, a major figure in American history, if he came out publicly and gave a speech and said this was an attack on our democracy, they almost took my life. All patriotic Americans. If he did a Liz Cheney, I think people would be talking about Mike Pence and what he said and his speech and so forth 100 years from now. And now he's going to be just another guy trying to get the nomination to 2024. I wouldn't put my money on him uh, based upon what I've seen. There's all these folks and I do think there is a special place in hell for people who know better. Uh, you, we've seen that recently with J.D. Vance, right? Uh, people who are smart people who know better. Mike Pompeo knows better, too. But who say irresponsible things because they think that's what people want to hear. Well, that's isn't that what most of them did? They sit there and they're talking bullshit. And who are they talking to? A party of one. Because we all know other than that 25% of loyal Trump supporters, we all know that it's a lie. Now, I, I'll disagree with you on one thing. I don't think Mike Pence would have gone down in history simply by hmm. acknowledging that January 6th was an insurrection. I don't think he would have. Mike Pence had done so much damage during the four years that he was with Trump. I don't think he would go down, and I don't think he can ever go down in history as... I'm not going to call him a hero as a patriot, as somebody who stood up. You can't stand up on January 6th after allowing Trump to do the things that he did day in and day out. Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, I guess, it, well, uh, historians would, would debate it, I suppose. I guess I think that sometimes what can, what can be more important than underrated in history is when somebody who's from the uh, particular party essentially, you know, um, st- sort of stands up against their establishment a little bit. Like one thing that's underrated is Eisenhower essentially codifying the New Deal by not overturning what happened in the New Deal when the Republicans came in power. And I feel like if Mike Pence or some other Republican, I mean, look, that's why I, I look kindly at what Liz Cheney did. I disagree with, as you know, I'm a progressive guy. I just disagree with Liz Cheney about almost everything. I think she's been wrong on a lot of things, but I think it, she's, I mean, the fact that she's done the right thing on January 6th uh, and towards Ch- Trump's second impeachment, I think, you know, it, it does mean something. It does mean something. And I think it's, it's, it's going to be her legacy in public service. Now, obviously, she's just a member of Congress. She's not a, she wasn't the vice president or president, but I think she's it, 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 at least she left her mark and did something useful with the job. Right. And let's just go back to dear old Mike Pompeo for a second, because <laughs> it's really what the question was about. It's sort of putting him on the block, on the trial block. He thought in his mind, and so did I, by the way, that Trump was going to start this international conflict. Why? Because he knows in history 
that it's happened before. And mm-hmm. that you, if there is a war that's going on, that there is a very, very slim chance that they're going to, you know, change an administration when you have a significant conflict going on in history. Now, Trump doesn't read. Let me be very clear. He never reads, right? He, he doesn't even read a full newspaper, despite the fact he'll walk around with 15 of them. Again, it's the illusion that he reads, that he's intelligent, he knows what's going on. But he knows enough about history to know that this has happened before. We all thought he was going to start a war with Iran. That's mm-hmm. what everybody was, was, was under the impression If, in fact, that that's what Mike Pompeo believed and being secretary of state, was it not incumbent upon him to go to Congress and express his concerns? Because he's not like you and I, just a pundit on a television, you know, news channel. This is the fucking secretary of state who's concerned about the president starting an international conflict. And that's right up his purview. So why didn't he and shouldn't he be held accountable for not doing it? Yeah, I feel that a lot of what was going on by Mike Pompeo and others was it was almost like they, they you know, dealing with. I remember uh, the, the comedian John uh, Delaney came up with the analogy of a horse loose in a hospital for the Trump for Donald Trump's presidency. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's almost like, OK, we've got to keep the horse in the hospital. We've got to keep the horse on the right floor. It was always about managing the situation so that we created the appearance that everything was super fine and, and everything was behaving as normal during the Trump years. That's that was what I my impression of what Mike Pompeo was doing. I think the guy was essentially trying to cover for Trump as best he could. And, uh, you know, I think that was his primary concern. Do, do I think he had an obligation to go to Congress? You know, it's an interesting thing. Clearly, he should have been expressing those concerns um, you know, if 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 there was some real basis for them externally. Now, I could the one thing and I, I will say I have no I don't really have any love for Pompeo or want to give him any benefit of the doubt. One thing I will I do wonder is what his basis was for his belief. Like, in other words, you know, Michael, how Trump operates. You've known him a long time. Pompeo, probably in the years that he knew him, not not nearly as many, had some sense of how the guy operates. But if it's just a hunch, like if he's going to Congress, he's like, yeah, this is my belief of what Trump's going to do. And he didn't have something solid, uh, then I wouldn't do it. But I think as soon as he had something solid, if Trump made some statement to him, uh, I think that would be enough that I would I, – if I were him, I would go to Congress and frankly make it public that this is what the president's trying to do because it's so evil. I believe if I could just be a predictor, a prognosticator of what happened, I wouldn't be shocked if – Trump called Pompeo to the Oval Office, sat him down, and then just turned around and asked him a very straightforward question. If there's a war going on, what's the chance that they're going to take me out of office? You th- <laughs> right? And then they'll say, yeah, that's, that's, what he would, that's what he would say to him. You know, mm-hmm. because right now we have real issues in Iran. And, you know, I'm thinking that, that the right thing for America is to, is to go to war and, and, so, and I could see Trump coming straight out like that to Pompeo. You think that would be enough to require that Pompeo goes to Congress or says something to somebody other than, you know, to a Wall Street Journal reporter or to write it in a book? 
Yeah, that is an example of of that's what it would take. I mean, the fact that he's considering that um, that that would be enough in my mind. And I hear you in that Trump would talk in almost euphemisms, questions by asking questions. He's revealing his thought process. One of the things that I think was hard when you know throughout the Trump years, I was trying to to decipher Trump's intent and knowledge from a legal perspective. And one thing that made it hard is the guy didn't come out and say things directly, right? Even to his closest advisors. And I think what would have happened is, you know, what would happen if Pompeo, and I'm sure Pompeo knows this, if he came out and said something, the Trump line would have been, well, I was just asking questions. I'm just exploring my options as president. And, and I don't, I'm not saying I do anything, but I'm just asking questions to my advisors. Am I not permitted to do that with my advisor, you know, with my advisors not running out to the public or to the Democrats? Uh, and I think that's that's the issue that someone like Pompeo, well, of course, Pompeo also is just looking out for himself. I mean, Pompeo looks seems to me like the guy who, you know, would stay silent if he thought it would get him one uh, percent more votes in 2020 in the 2024 primary. Right. So um, that's who he is. Yeah. And if you compare this, for example, to Bolton and his book. I, I read it. I read it while I was in solitary confinement. To be very honest with you, I thought the book sucked. Uh, I really was very, it was very hard to turn the page. Like I compared it, a buddy of mine, when we were swapping books, right? Um, I turned around and I said to him, it's really a tough read. It's like pulling nose hair. It's painful, right? Um, it really, it, but what else are you going to do when you're sitting in solitary? It's the only book you have. You know, I, I'm, you, you read it. It's very self-laudatory, and on top of that, it talks about multiple conversations that he had with Trump that he should have done something about. But instead, he decided, you know, he was going to hold back and he was going to, you know, challenge Donald or he was going to challenge Kelly, who is a constant target of his in the book. First of all, they're all full of shit. None of them challenged Trump at all. They all basically ran around trying to figure out how to take shit off of his desk so that he didn't know what was going on. Because if he would have reacted to it, who knows, maybe we would have found ourselves in some sort of an international conflict. Yeah. And I also think, you know, it's very interesting. You talk about Kelly. I'm curious. I have not read the book. How Kelly comes off. I, to me, people like him who had independent reputations are the most interesting here. I mean, people who, um, you know, people like him uh, who were these adults in the room early on in the administration who were he clearly thought that they had managed Trump at a certain to a certain degree. And then it was very, you know, revealed at some point that, nope, they really had no control over there. And Trump was running the show. And they were out. I, I find it, I found it interesting that they didn't come out and say more and do more than they did. Yeah, because they were afraid. They didn't want to have their reputations wrecked by Trump going on a Twitter rampage like a two-year-old, right, with those little fat thumbs of his. And believe it or not, that Twitter rampage would have knocked both of them onto their ass. And if Pompeo thought that there was even a 1% chance of running in 2024, a Trump Twitter rampage would have certainly negated that. After a year unlike any other, we all deserve some summer fun. But be on the lookout for new travel scams designed by cybercriminals to steal your identity. 
Help protect yourself online by being mindful of online ads, independently verified deals with the company, and don't rush into giving away info on suspicious websites. You put your information in so many places online. Unfortunately, cybercriminals around the world keep finding new ways to steal identities. The all-in-one protection of Norton 360 with LifeLock makes it easy to have protection in the digital world. Device security helps block cybercriminals from stealing your personal information. VPN with bank-grade encryption helps keep information you send over Wi-Fi safe. LifeLock Identity Theft Protection monitors your personal information and alerts you to potential threats. Now, no one can prevent all cybercrime and identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But if you have Norton 360 with LifeLock, you can opt into cyber safety. So sign up today and save 25% or more off your first year by going to Norton.com slash Cohen. That's 25% off Norton 360 with LifeLock at Norton.com slash Cohen. But I do want to ask you, Renato, last week's indictment of Alan Weisselberg and the Trump organization is seen by most legal experts as the beginning rather than the end. Now, There have been rumblings of late that a Trump family member, perhaps, and it's my opinion, that it's going to be Ivanka, could be next. What are the chances of a family member flipping on Trump, in your opinion? Very low, to be honest with you. You know them better than I do. You've met these people. But I'll just tell you, my experience as a prosecutor, it's very, very hard uh, to get family members to flip. Usually, family members are often willing to... Uh, take the hit for one another. Uh, and it can be very, very challenging. Um, what, what I've had, I have had situations when I was a prosecutor and on the defense side where the father, and I know that's not going to happen here, would be willing to take the hit for the son or the daughter, so to speak. But uh, I don't think that Donald Trump would do that. But, he, you know, in this situation, I don't see them flipping on their father. Uh, do you, I mean, you, you know these people, or at least you've interacted with them. I haven't. What do you, what do you, what's your take? I'm curious. So let me just, let me, before I give you the answer, okay. because I have a very interesting take on the whole okay, thing. Okay, I'm interested. Um, you know, one of the, one of the question, part of the question I asked you is that, you know, about legal experts thinking that this is the beginning rather than the end. You don't believe for a second that Weisselberg is the beginning and the end of all of the indictments that are going to be coming out of the DA's office, do you? You know, it's an interesting thing, Michael. I, I'm. I, this is what I would say. I'm. I'm not sure. And this is. You know, I. I don't know if you notice. With legal. There's a variety of legal analysts. Some people uh, are proclaim everything. Okay, justice is always coming. I'm not necessarily one of those people. I'm very careful about what I say. So here's what I will say to you about it. I think that. Well, I think that they don't have more. In my mind, they don't have the charges made on others right now, this second. As you and I are talking, I don't believe that the DA's office has uh, charges ready to go, uh, you know, on a bunch of other people and they're just sitting, you know, they're just sitting on them. I think that this was the best that they had at the time to go after Weisselberg. They think they can convince Weisselberg to flip. Now, they're still building their case. And the fact that they've indicted Weisselberg and indicted the organization may break some things their way. So I wouldn't I wouldn't I would not bet against them. 
But at the same time, I think it's an open question. That's that's my read on it. So let me start with my response to that part. Okay. I believe that this is the beginning and certainly far from the end. Alan Weisselberg is definitively not the target that everybody is looking for. Um, he will be like me, collateral damage <laughs> to Trump and the Trump organization. Now, remember, I've been with the district attorney and the attorney general more than a dozen times. And I know the 12 or so areas that they're looking at. Now, one area, for example, and it's been talked about a lot, so I'm willing to discuss it, has to do, for example, like with Seven Springs. That's where he bought mm-hmm. a property for six and a half million. He bounced it up on his financials to two hundred and ninety million. And then of course he devalued it for purposes of paying tax onto it. Now, Alan Weisselberg, for a multitude of these crimes, right, is not really the keystone to the next set of indictments. Why? Well, first of all, you have Mazers, the accounting firm, and there was documents all over the place. There's so much documentary evidence, which is what I did at my House Oversight Committee. I knew people would question my integrity, and so I said, I don't even want to put it out there for you to do so. I'm putting up documentary evidence, so if you don't fucking like, you don't like what I'm saying, I don't give a shit. Take a look on the board, because here's the fucking paper. Right. Don't take my word for it. Take your own. And that's what I tried to do. And that's what they have. So why the strategy of Weisselberg and then moving on to the next one, like Ivanka, who took millions of dollars in these fake sort of uh, payments for her, you know, uh, her advice for whatever the hell that she gave to them, which I I personally don't know. Uh, I think she's the next Now, we're going to get to your next question, which I think is more interesting, and I'm sure the listeners are all waiting for it. What do I think between Donald uh, and the kids? And I've said this even on television. Donald is the king, and even his children work for the king, right? He used to be very clear in saying to them in front of everybody, I'll fire your asses like I would fire anybody else's. And I thought that was very interesting. Now, you also will remember when the DA had the case against Trump uh, Org uh, for the Soho property Mm -hmm. where Don and Ivanka had basically lied on documents and they were being looked at. And I remember Trump coming to me and saying as we were working on this case, if one or the other has to go, let it be Don. (laughs) Because Ivanka would not be able to handle it. Now, I'm a father of a daughter and a son, and I'm not so sure that I could pass up my son for my daughter, my daughter for my son. I I wouldn't want either of them. He's like, listen, if we can make the deal and it's done, he'll do just fine. He could handle that sort of an environment. Ivanka could not. Do I believe that Donald would turn on the children? Absolutely. To save himself? 100%. He'll turn on Don Jr. in a second. He's his least favorite. He'll turn on Eric. He's his second least favorite. Now, I'm not talking about Tiffany, because Tiffany's sort of like the redheaded stepchild. She's just there in order to prop him up for the illusion of him being a good father as well, and that's just not true. And Ivanka is the favorite of the three children. But remember something, something I say all the time. Donald Trump cares for no one or anything other than himself, and that includes his children. Fuck, he would turn around and send Melania 
to prison before he would go. Because that's just who he is. And nothing else matters except for him, his freedom, his money, his company. And if one, one of these other family members has to go away so that he doesn't, rest assured, they're all fair game. I gotta, I, I, one thing that I, I find interesting is that despite that, there's all these people around him who want to be loyal to him. In other words, Michael, I have certainly friends and associates and family and I treat them with respect and I'll do things for them. And they know that when the chips are down, I'm there for them. And I'm sure and it works both ways. I'm not used to a family situation where, you know, that the guy at the other end doesn't really care about you and it would be willing to cut you loose. Why then are people in his own family, you know, falling all over themselves to prop him up? Because it's a paycheck. Because without it, where would Don Jr. go? What the fuck could Don Jr. do? Be a public speaker? Not with that voice. You know, what would, what would Ivanka do? Rip off more people's shoe line, you know, designs, right? And put it out there, right? For, for you know, some product that's manufactured in China. Or Eric, the dumbest of all three. Maybe he would run against Andrew Giuliani, you know, for governor. That, but that would be about it. So they need their father in order to maintain the life that they've become accustomed to. But I do want to ask you, as you know, a prosecutor, former prosecutor, sure. I'm curious what you make of this, right? Or Donald's statement, I didn't know it was illegal defense. Because can his two decades of bragging about being a tax genius and avoiding paying taxes be used as evidence in the case against the, him or the Trump org uh, in a future case or right against him personally? Yeah, it can. I mean, one of the interesting things is so in tax in the tax law, our tax laws are unusual in the criminal justice system in that there's a heightened burden. So typically, and I'll, I'll say, first of all, federally, since a lot of people are thinking of a lot of th- people think of federal prosecution in the federal system. I was a former federal prosecutor. I actually have to prove that if you, for example, have a false statement in your tax returns, that you not only knew it was false, but that you knew that whatever you were doing there was, you know, wrongful or illegal or trying to, you know, you were trying to evade the system in some way. It's a heightened burden because the idea is that the tax laws are so complicated. We want to, the, 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 you know, Congress, when they made the law, wanted to make sure that we weren't prosecuting people just for making mistakes. Now, in the New York, essentially, it melds together the state of mind requirement in New York law, melds together with the intent to defraud. So they basically just need to show that Trump intended to, or whoever, you know, let's see, in this case, Weisselberg intended to in in putting these false numbers out there or failing to report certain things to the IRS, omitting certain things from the IRS that they were trying to fool the IRS. And absolutely Trump's statements about how what a genius he is about taxes and how much he focused on taxes are going to be part of that because the standard defense, Michael, in every white collar case, and I've prosecuted a lot of them, I've defended some uh, since I've left, is, well, hey, uh, my client was not paying attention to this he's a very busy businessman. He's got a hundred different companies. He signs so many documents every day. He wasn't paying attention to this minor detail. He had no idea that this was a just pure mistake, a oversight. That's usually the defense. So if he can say, you know, I'm just, ta- I was, ta- you know, his, if his defense is I was totally ignorant of the tax laws, had 
don't pay attention to taxes. Of course, those statements are going to be used against him. The question is just what will a jury in Manhattan find persuasive? And what's going to happen here? He will use that defense. Why? Because it's protective of him. He's going to say, my tax returns, my tax returns, they're more than a million pages. I, I pay people to do this for me. Meaning Weisselberg is going to become a member of the hashtag under the bus club. But more than just, Weis- more than just Weisselberg in this case is going to be this guy named Bender who's over at the accounting firm of Mazers. Donald's going to say, I pay them a fortune to go through it. If this was a problem, they should have alerted me. And yeah, I may have said that I'm a genius. I may have said that I know the tax code better than anybody, like he knows war better than his generals. He, you know, he'll turn around and to save his own ass, he'll say, I was just puffing. I was doing what all politicians do. I was bragging. But that doesn't mean that I actually know it. And the important thing is that I didn't know it at the time that I was committing the crime. You see, when in my specific case, when they charged me with tax evasion, Mm -hmm. not only have I never tax evaded, I've never not filed a tax return. You know, in my entire life, up until that point, I've never even made a request for, for an extension. Right? I've always paid a tax. But, they, but Tom McKay and this guy Nick Roos, when they wrote the allocution, they were so insistent that it say, when uh, Judge Pauly, who just passed, turned around and said to me, so you knew that what you were doing, exactly word for word that just came out of your mouth, they, of course, knew that that was going to be Pauly's, because they all worked together for this prosecution, that they knew that that's what I needed to say. And I was willing to say that I had no choice because they were going to go after my wife and claiming that she was a co-conspirator in the hush money payments. So it's an interesting back and forth game that goes on. It's like ping pong, but they already control the game. They control, they control the table. It's an amazing thing. And that's what Trump is going to do. He's going to claim that he didn't know. He's going to use Weisselberg. He's going to use Jeff McConney. He's going to use Donald Bender from Mazers. He'll throw anyone under the bus in order to avoid prosecution and possible imprisonment. Yeah, it's so interesting, Mike, you mentioned that Bender from Mazers. So I've handled a lot of tax cases, both as a prosecutor and on the defense side. I've got a, a variety of them right now. And as I always tell my clients, the le- one thing I can promise you is the tax preparer's testimony is going to be, I I got I took whatever the client told me and I put it in those tax return. I'm not responsible for any omissions, any false statements. I just took what that guy gave me and I put it in there, and I'm as clean and pure as the driven snow. Uh, you got to think that Mazers, that's going to be their testimony, right? I mean, in other words, even if. Uh, even if uh, Weisselberg's willing to t- to throw himself under the bus, I don't I don't see Mazers doing that. Is that is that right? You're 100 percent correct. And the fear that Mazers will have, specifically this guy Bender. When I was in Otisville, I was with two forensic accountants that used that same argument. This is the information that I was given by my client. One got six years, the other got three years. All right, so. If you think that that is the defense that's going to get you off and throw it back on Trump, you're going to need more than just your argument against Trump's. But 
Yeah, that is certainly the argument. And I am certain that Mazers will not take the fall. Listen, that's a big, it's a real firm. They're not going to take the fall for Donald Trump, who now is certainly not going to be a client. I'm sure they don't want him as a client anymore. So now is the time for them to turn around and to you know, support all of the you know, um, questions that are being asked by the district attorney's office you know, with all of the backup documentation. Yeah, I exactly right. So Mazers is going to be on the uh, part of the DA's team. Essentially, here they're going to be the witnesses. The DA is going to embrace them. I, when I was a prosecutor, I always embraced the tax preparers. You know, because these are professionals, and if they saw, you know, if if they knew anything was up, they wouldn't have put it in there. They they were it was hidden from them by the defendant, right? That's usually you know the the prosecutor's line. So the question, so what does Weisselberg do? And it's very interesting. And she said, Michael, I mean, there were times in your past where you had, you know, were taking the fall for Trump or doing a lot of things you didn't want to do because you were working for Trump. You know, would a guy like Alan Weisselberg, who's obviously, you know, he's he had a very su- substantial position. He's got money. He's got a life uh, that, you know, he's he's towards the end of his life. Uh, would he really take some sort of fall for Donald Trump. I, my sense is he's going to fight this to the bitter end. Yeah. And right now, the reason that everybody's saying that Allen will never, and I hate the word flip. I'd rather just say cooperate. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so Allen right now has not been cooperating. Why? Because he's been under investigation. It is a whole different world. When it goes from an investigation to an indictment, you know this better than oh, anyone. Yeah. This is what you did for a fucking living, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's incredible. There is such a there is such a difference between the two. One is Donald's got his arms, and now Donald's wrapping his arms around Allen and saying the same bullshit that he said to me, Michael. Just stay the course. I got you. Nothing's going to happen. It's all good. And they may be speaking right now about a strategy of trying to throw, you know, McConaughey under the bus or somebody else. That may be their strategy, right? Where Donald's like, don't worry, I'm going to pay for you. That bullshit has already been disproven, not just by me, but now look at Rudy Giuliani, who believes that he was supposed to be paid like, you know, $200,000 a day, right? Or something yeah. like that. Some ridiculous number. And right now, what's happening? Donald is like, pay you? Pay you for what, you fucking sweaty, farty, you know, hair-dripping jerk-off that ended up doing some press conference at Four Seasons Landscaping parking lot? Pay you for that? You're an idiot. He'll do the same to Alan. It's just a matter of time. Listen, look, what do we know about history? It always repeats itself, correct? I mean, that's a long-time-used adage. Alan, if you're listening to this, welcome to Under the Bus Club. I will be seeing you there, along with Rudy, along with Bender, along with a bunch of other people, because that's just who Donald is. He's not going to pay the legal fees. Right now, he'll start, yes, then he'll fall behind, and that's what happens Always. But I do want to move on and ask you, meanwhile, in Fulton County, Georgia, the investigation into alleged election interference by the former president, a.k.a. the the other guy, right, continues without pause. Now, I'm curious if you've heard any updates about the case and where things currently stand. Is, Is such a prosecution or even an indictment a long shot? 
Wow. Well, one thing I will say, Michael, is from hearing the district attorney speak on television, it's pretty obvious that she's really eager to make this case. Uh, so there, I mean, this is the thing, you know, for better or for worse, the elected uh, prosecutors. I mean, she's very motivated to bring it. So I think that they're doing everything they possibly can to make the case happen. And I think it would be an uh, unusual and perhaps unprecedented case. In other words, there's plenty of, of circumstances where people have engaged in voter fraud or some other you know, shenanigans related to an election. But I can't think of a case where the president of the United States has called up a local election official and had conversations essentially suggesting that they find votes that aren't there. Right now, it's recorded and we've all heard it uh, with our own ears. So I think, you know, ultimately, I know that there's going to be more to the case. In other words, they're going to have more conversations that weren't recorded before the recording. You know, in other words, there was a reason that the that the. Um, that the the Georgia Secretary of State Raffensperger, you know, had a recording uh, in that particular, you know, in that particular uh, meeting because he knew, or that call because he knew what was going to happen. Um, but uh, and and there were events leading up to it that caused him to do that. So I do think that there's going to be other evidence that's presented. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, we know basically the most damning evidence publicly. We already know it against Trump. And I guess the question is going to be, can you convince a bunch of people in a jury in Georgia to convict Trump uh, based on this sort of thing? Or or is there potentially a hung jury there? I think I I worry with any prosecution of Trump that there's a real chance of a hung jury because, you know, out of every 12 random people in the United States, finding one who isn't um, hasn't been deceived by Donald Trump uh, is difficult. Um, and I think there's always risk with that kind of a prosecution. You know, in this specific case, though, with Georgia, it's not even that he could now make an allegation that I didn't know, blah, blah, blah. Right. He knew exactly how many votes he needed. Sure. One more in order to have won the to have won the state. So he can't make the allegation. I was just calling because I was told that there was all sorts of election fraud that was going on. And obviously, I wanted to win the state. And so I was calling Rathensburger on it to make sure that there. He specifically stated how many votes that he needed for them to find in order to overturn the election results. I mean, look, I know the cult of Trump, and I know how people will try to defend him, especially people who've never met him. I mean, I can't tell you the number of morons that I meet on the street that want to debate me on Donald. I'm like, have you ever met him? Have you even gone to any of his fucking rallies, right, other than watching them on television? And the answer is no, they haven't. And you want to tell me about Donald? Seriously? Right? And I agree with you. I think finding a 12-person jury that one person is not part of the cult you know, will be difficult, but we'll see what, we'll see what ends up happening. Yeah. I mean, one thing I will say in that, that listeners should keep in mind and, you know, you mentioned this, you kind of alluded to this a few minutes ago, Michael, is when you said that an indictment is a lot different than an investigation, you know, firsthand when you're indicted, it's a, it's a really, uh, it's a pain in the butt. It's not fun. It's an awful experience. It's expensive. It's stressful. It's time consuming. 
Uh, it really is for any ordinary person. Maybe Donald Trump can just shrug off getting indicted. But I think he would be embarrassed and I think he would be concerned and he would have to spend a lot of money if he was indicted, no matter what the result was. Uh, and I think he's probably got had a lot of heartburn over what's happened in Manhattan. And he personally hasn't even been charged there. That's right. But where Weisselberg, since we're talking about Weisselberg becoming a cooperator and why I say to you that I believe that he ultimately will, because both of his sons have issues as well. One of them, uh, Jack, who was involved and is involved with Ladder Capital, one of two lenders to the Trump organization, and you could bet your bottom dollar that there's something wrong in that one since nobody else other than Deutsche Bank wanted to loan Trump a dollar. But then there's his son, Barry, who's the recipient of the apartment, who is a recipient mm. of, you know, other perks, including the tuitions uh, being sure. paid, you know, by Trump, as well as this whole issues of cash uh, as it related to Walmart, Laskarink, and also the carousel. So, you have a whole slew of potential issues. Will Weisselberg offer up himself? Will he offer up his two sons as well? You know, just to protect Donald? I'm going to go on the limb here, and I'm going to say, yeah, I don't think so. I just don't think so. Now, Alan could be as loyal as you want, but when it starts coming to your family members, that's where you kind of have to draw the line. Yeah, I think what I could see from Weisselberg is he plays it out till the end, hopes for an acquittal. If he's not acquitted, if he's convicted, you know, he could even potentially play it up up until sentencing or right after sentencing. In other words, you know, it, you get to a point because there, there gets to be points just so that the listeners understand there are points where uh, a criminal case starts getting real for somebody. You know, the indictment, as you mentioned, is one of them. It's like, oh, crap, I'm indicted. It's in the newspaper. All my friends know, you know, that, whatever. Now I got to go to court, this sort of thing. But then you often can forget about that if you're out on bond. If you're out on bond, you can sort of put, the, okay, I've been indicted, but then, you know, three months later, your life hasn't changed and you're still doing your ordinary stuff. But then you have a trial, things start getting real. If you're convicted, then you're like, oh, crap, I may have to go to prison. Then there's a sentencing coming up. That day of the sentencing is very, very, very real. And in the days leading up to it, I'll tell you, if somebody represents clients and has prepared them for it, it's a very difficult thing. So in the, the days leading up to sentencing, weeks leading up to sentencing, or afterward, I could see, and more likely beforehand, I could see Weisselberg uh, having a come-to-Jesus moment, so to speak. Um, in that, you know, the question is just going to be, what is he convicted on? What is the likely punishment? Now, I had originally thought maybe a year, okay? But Dan Alonzo is a friend of mine who is a former Manhattan DA, I respect. His judgment on this, because he was the number two guy to Cy Vance, so I imagine he's a good predictor of what Manhattan DA's office is going to do. Uh, he he thinks more like two to six. So if you're looking at, at his age, Weisselberg's age, let's say three or four years in prison, that's yeah, a significant amount of time for somebody his age who's a pretty wealthy guy who's lived a, a posh lifestyle. You know, I think that 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 could be a motivator for him. We'll see. Yep, I agree with you. Now, most experts agree that the former president's lawsuit against big tech is nothing more than a PR ploy to help him remain relevant and to raise as much needed funds as he possibly can, right? Our grifter in chief. If the case were to go to trial 
It would open him up for discovery about January 6th. Now, with this in mind, why do you believe that he brought the suit and what does he gain beyond the publicity for the moment? I think it's merely a talking point, Michael. I don't even think the case, it's, it's going to lose on a motion to dismiss. It's not even going to get to any, it's not going to go anywhere. Because just so everyone understands, in the United States of America, the First Amendment only applies to the government. It doesn't apply to private actors. So, uh, you know, if I... If I want to, you know, post on Facebook or if I want to go into the Trump Tower and talk inside of the Trump Tower and give an anti-Trump speech inside his hotel, they could just boot me out because it's their own private property. And I don't have a First Amendment. I can't enforce the First Amendment against the Trump uh, organization or against Facebook. It's just those are private companies and they could do what they want with their own private property. So uh, that's going to go absolutely nowhere. It's going to get tossed out, and I think it was a fundraising ploy and a talking point and gives them a day or two in the conservative media. That's all I can think of. Yeah, which, of course, is extremely opposite of the lawsuit that I just recently filed against the government for remanding me back to prison based upon um, my refusal to sign a document waiving my First Amendment right to publish my book, to speak to media, uh, to ensure that my friends and family, that's against government. Right. right. That's where my First Amendment was curtailed by government. Very different than, you know, Facebook or Twitter just saying, I've had enough of you. Right. right. Exactly right. And that, that's a key distinction. So you're, you, in your case, it all comes out of the facts of exactly what happened. Because if the government tells you you can't speak, that's a problem. All right. In the United States of America, First Amendment. But if, if uh, the local. Mariano. Wait, Renato. Thank they didn't just tell me that I can't speak. As I was sitting, waiting in the waiting area with my buddy Jeff Levine, a lawyer, right? Uh, we're watching television. I had three marshals come up from behind me, tell me to stand up, right? To face the wall as they handcuffed and shackled me, right? That's yeah. a little bit different than Facebook or Twitter saying, Donald, you're fucking nuts and we're not interested in what you're promoting, Right. Well, it's just it's a concept thing I want people to understand is that the concept matters. Right. In other words, Facebook, it's a free country. Sure. And but the freedom is for Facebook to tell you to take a hike and you can go someplace else. Go to some other competing uh, web website or social media outlet if you want or start your, your own. But Facebook has its own freedom. And the freedom is if you're the if you're Facebook, the entity or whatever, the guy who owns it, you can just be like, I only want to let my friends post on it or, or I don't want to let you post on it for any reason whatsoever. And that's their right. And so that same way that it's, by the way, all the crazies who, do, who wanted to wear not wear a mask when they're in somebody's restaurant or, or business. Hey, it's a free country. This is my restaurant. If I if I want you to have to wear a mask at my restaurant, uh, that's my freedom. Right. So that's how the First Amendment works in this country. Yeah, I think maybe you need to send a memo letter to Donald and to his team of high-powered tobacco lawyers. All of a sudden, now tobacco lawyers. I mean, he's so stupid. He fucking idiot. Now, talk about another fucking idiot, Matt Gates, right? Because <laughs> Matt Gates seems to be on borrowed time as federal prosecutors close in on him for alleged underage sex trafficking, obstruction of justice, and other charges. 
What are you hearing from your sources? Because I know you have a lot of them about the timing of a Gates indictment and what role will Joel Greenberg play in Gates's downfall? Does the fact that he asked to delay his sentencing to continue to testify mean anything to you? Uh, it's a great question. I, I do think that Greenberg is going to be central to a prosecution of Gates. And the fact that Greenberg is delayed his sentencing, which was done 100 percent with the knowledge and consent of the prosecutors, means that he still has valuable information to be giving the prosecutors. His cooperation isn't, isn't yet done. And, you know, I'm sure from your own experience, Michael, that at a sentencing, a cooperator wants to be able to present the full picture of what their cooperation was at sentencing. And the government wants the same thing to occur. So generally what will happen is the government will agree to postpone the sentencing out as long as possible to ensure that the cooperator can do all the work he needs to do to continue to build the case for the government. And Matt Gates is in a lot of trouble. And, and one reason why is, you know, we've been sitting here, Michael, talking about our hypothetical juries about a tax case or a voting voting fraud case. And it's very possible that uh, the, an average group of people in Manhattan could just decide, like, eh, maybe he didn't pay attention to his taxes or, eh, this voter thing, who knows what he intended. But, man, I will tell you from experience, jurors do not like people who mess with underage kids, okay? That's the bottom line. <laughs> and regardless of what, whether Gates is guilty or not, I can tell you right now, they're not going to like this guy. They're not going to like the allegations. They're not going to like him doing drugs with, with young girls and cavorting around. You know, it's not a happy picture that is going to get painted to the jury. So if he's got a legal defense and he may, he certainly does have a good lawyer uh, on his case. Now I do know the lawyer that represents him. Uh, you know, it's going to either he has to hope for a bench trial, which he doesn't have necessarily a right to get if the government doesn't consent. But or he's got to hope that the government just, you know, decides they don't have enough evidence, because if they charge and it sure looks like they're building towards a charge in the not too distant future, I would say in the next six months. Uh, I think, it, you know, if you're Gates and if you, you know, if you don't want to go to a jury on this kind of a case. Yeah. And if you're Matt Gates, you really don't want to go to prison either because, <laughs> sure. uh, you know, the allegations that he's being charged with, um, you know, they have a, a prison term for it's called the CHOMO, right, in, in prison, a child molester. And they are the lowest of the low and they actually have to separate them because they're a target to every other person. So it's not just a jury, right, that fucking will hate him, but it's going to be once he gets there as well, he's looked upon as the worst uh, of of the worst. I mean, you could be a murderer. I mean, and you know, it could be Jeffrey Dahmer, right, who walked in, you know, with somebody's kidney hanging, you know, from a piece of his tooth, right? I mean, you know, that's okay. But you come in as a chomo, as a child molester, you're the lowest of the low, and your life is in danger. You know, your life is in danger. So they have to put you into a special section. Yeah, well, it's By interesting. Way, I wish nothing, I wish nothing but the absolute worst for Matt Gates. What he did the night before when I was, when I was um, to testify, when he started with that bullshit, and then when I was actually there seeing this fucking asshole walking around the, you know, the back of the, um, of the room 
when I was testifying, trying to get my attention, walking around as if he was going to do anything and just projecting his dirty deeds onto me in order to what? To appease, again, a party of one, Donald Trump? Well, you know, as they say, the chickens are coming home to roost, pal. Well, you know, I got to tell you, look, I, I you know, I, I really... Uh... <laughs> I don't have a lot of nice things to say about Matt Gaetz's behavior over the last years. He's in, in, been an embarrassment to the office he holds. I, I will just say, you know, regarding the, the, the point you made about, you know, how people who are uh, convicted of crimes against children are treated in prison. I, when I was a prosecutor, had people who were charged with those crimes. And, like the defense attorneys would ask me, can we clear the courtroom? for the indictment can we clear or for the arraignment can we clear the courtroom for the sentencing because they don't want other people in custody to know the nature of the charges against them because they were afraid of their treatment in prison and for mad gates you know it's not quite the way that some of the people i prosecuted where they were going after you know under you know t- you know infants or you know toddlers or something but still it's it's the sort of thing, it's, he's a very well-known guy. He can't hide what he what he's in there for. And he's he's not the kind of guy that would, you know, he's not a, he's a murderer. I, I, I don't, look, I'm not an expert on what happens inside of prisons, okay? I'm more of a guy and he's an expert on getting people in there. But I would think logically as a lay person that a person is a murderer. You're saying how they're respected. Yeah, you don't want to get murdered. <laughs> you may, maybe uh, keep your distance <laughs> to such a person. Yeah, Matt Gates is not somebody anyone's going to be scared of in prison. And, um, uh, yeah, I, I would think, you know, you're going to get a long, potentially a lengthy prison term for a case like this. That's the thing that, you know, we're, we, you know, you and I a minute ago were talking about Weisselberg. Oh, I might get two years, three years, four years, whatever. Uh, when you're dealing with uh, exploitation of a minor, very different scenario. And in a Florida court, I, I don't know uh, what's going to happen to that guy. But he, he should be very concerned. Yep, and um, I hope it's keeping him up at night. Now, last week's Trump Organization indictments seemed to have buried what would have been an explosive revelation from journalist Jonathan Carl's upcoming Bill Barr book, where he said that Trump's election claims were total bullshit. Now, Barr then goes on to state that Mitch McConnell pleaded with Barr to stand up to the president because the GOP needed him in Georgia and did not want to antagonize the president. So instead of doing that, he resigned. If you can, can you unpack for my listeners what you believe to be the true meaning of this revelation? Does it rehabilitate him, or does it prove that he abused the power of the Department of Justice and his, and his position to try and keep the GOP in power? I, I think what it tells me, Michael, uh, look, we've always known that Bill Barr was somebody who I think was carrying the water for Trump, who was willing to deceive the public for Trump. He did it multiple times during his tenure. And in the very end, he reached a certain limit of what he was willing to do. But I find it interesting that he wasn't really going to push back against Trump or do much of anything until Mitch McConnell told him to do it for the Republican Party. I find, what, I, what I found interesting there was you know, you could if you know this episode to me actually hurt Barr's reputation because in, there was a lot a lot of debate at the end. Like, well, you know, Barr did you know didn't go along with the voter fraud claims. He did you know come out and say there was no evidence to support them, and he he did resign. So 
maybe Barr wasn't so bad after all. And then what we find out is, well, he was essentially um, doing what he did because Mitch McConnell told him that's what the Republican Party needed. And that 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 really matches what I saw from Bill Barr. I never met the man. I don't know him personally. But, you know, it was very obvious he was deceiving the public and he was trying to push forward a political agenda using his perch as attorney general, which is supposed to be an apolitical post. And, you know, he was really somebody who was sort of an operative there for Trump. And towards the end, what happened was he he knew, he, you know, there was no way he could defend what Trump was doing. And instead of coming out and saying so, um, which he did, um, you know, the only the, what he did is when he finally came out and said there was no evidence of voter fraud, he did it at the best of Mitch McConnell because McConnell told him that's what the Republican Party needed. And so it was just more political theater from him. Yes, because I see Bill Barr and I talk a lot about him. I think he's a piece of shit. Too little, too late. No kudos to him. In fact, Things that we should be looking at, and I plan on with my lawsuit, Bill Barr is certainly one of the people that are named in my upcoming lawsuit against the government. I want to depose him. I want the documents. I can't get them from FOIA because for some unknown reason, the FOIA office doesn't seem to have them. They can't find them, despite the fact I'm supposed to be getting them in an expedited manner because time is of the essence. Instead, you know, they send me your, you know, they'll send me your high school, you know, transcript before they're going to send me any of the stuff that's going on. But the way he, um, the way he dealt with the Mueller report, the way he sat there trying to defend, you know, everything Trump. You're right. Until Mitch McConnell, the dark overlord of the GOP, told him what to do. I don't think Bill Barr gets a pass. I think Bill Barr's a fucking coward. And I think if he was if he wanted to ever rehabilitate himself and it's not easy. Trust me, I know he needs to come clean with with basically everything that he has done, not just, you know, Oh, I, I believe that the election was won fair and square by Joe Biden. No one gives a shit what you say, Bill, right? The guy in the White House right now was who? It's Joe Biden. It's not Donald Trump. So no one gives a shit that you agree that the election was done fair and, you know, and properly. It doesn't mean anything. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, it doesn't matter at this point. Really, the the hope would be like there's a lot of, I think, naive people out there who think that, well, if Bill Barr's out there saying that the election was fair, maybe it'll convince some of the Trumpsters that Trump lost fair and square. And you and I both know that these people would not be, you know, they would be convinced that one plus one equals three or the worth is flat as long as Donald Trump said so. I know because some of these people are my family. I, I literally I know people who have been uh, deceived by Trump. And I think for those people uh, bar all of these folks who were the too little, too late club, uh, to use your analogy, uh, they don't really matter at this point. Trump's going to say whatever he's going to say, and his his loyal faithful are going to believe it. Yep, 100 percent. And that's why these same stupid people keep sending him in this money, um, which makes no sense to me. But, you know, Renato, as we're winding down the hour, believe it, it's already gone that fast. Uh, I have one last question for you. What do you think should and can be done by Merrick Garland to reform the DOJ to prevent its future politicization by the next Donald Trump or by the next Bill Barr? 
There's got to be something. You know, I, I had such high hopes for Merrick Garland on so many things, specifically, you know, f- finalizing prison reform and so on, or holding you know, some of these people like Bill Barr or Donald Trump to accountability. What do you think should and can be done? Wow, that's a really big question. It's a big question. I will say I've been a little bit disappointed that there hasn't been a focus by the Justice Department on what happened over the last four years. I, I had expected, Michael, for there to be some sort of commission or task force to look at how the Justice Department could be reformed going forward, because there was a politicization of the department. It was alarming what happened, and we don't want to let that happen again. You know, I, I don't think that Garland is going to do something crazy. I don't think Garland is a Bill Barr, but we shouldn't who knows who the next president can be? And we don't want to rely. It could be Eric Trump, for all I know. I don't want to rely on just sort of having a good person there. So uh, to me, having regulations that, you know, for example, maybe we should be using people like special counsels more. Maybe there should be more layers of review for, you know, political you know actions that could have political implications. Maybe there should be more review by Congress or interplay with Congress. Uh, in terms of politicization, I think those sort of things would help more transparency about Justice Department. And you mentioned criminal justice reform. That's something that there that there's been a lot of talk about. Uh, not tons of action about yet in the you know thus far. In the obviously we're very early on in the Biden administration, but uh, I think I agree with you that there needs to be you know comprehensive criminal justice reform as well. Um, so, look, a lot of work to be done. And I will say from my my view of Garland is he is a guy who's been a judge for 20 something years, been a judge a long time. Very, you know, he's not somebody who's been running a massive organization. He's not a former prosecutor. You know, prosecutors, I think your experiences shape you. Uh, he was a guy who was in the justice. I shouldn't say he wasn't a prosecutor. He was in the Justice Department for a period of time. But I do think being a judge, you know, where you're slow and you're steady and you listen to both sides, and you're careful and you're measured. I think that has an impact on you. And I think he's taking a kind of careful, steady, measured approach, which maybe isn't bad, but I'm not sure it's what the Justice Department needs right now. No, it needs somebody who's going to do something. It needs action. It needs somebody who's willing to be bold and get out there, but for the right side. You see, that's what Bill Barr did. He did everything the way that Donald wanted it, which, of course, was corrupt and dirty and so on. We're looking for Merrick Garland to be like Bill Barr, but with legitimacy, with honesty and with integrity to bring back the Justice Department so that everyone, myself included, doesn't believe that the Department of Justice is really nothing more than the Department of Injustice, where people can't get a fair shake. Look, there are so many of these politicians including Bill Barr, including the president, including Mike Pence, including, you know, senior advisors like Jared Kushner or Ivanka Trump, that need that there needs to be investigation into what they're doing. You know, the relationships with Mohammed bin Salman or Kim Jong-un, by the way, these are so why should Mm -hmm. we as American citizens be completely left in the dark, not knowing what these guys did. Why was why is there not an investigation into what went on in Helsinki between Trump and Putin when nobody was allowed to take notes and only one person that's on the Putin side? I mean, that's a real problem, in my opinion. And the fact that there's nobody investigating 
any of this corrupt behavior. All it does is it gives the next guy a platform in terms of how to study our justice system and how to be able to figure out how to beat it to the next level, which, of course, is a question that I always talk to most of my my guests about. You know, my biggest fear is that Donald Trump 2.0 shows up and it won't be Eric Trump because Eric's a fucking idiot, you know, and even dumber than his father, which is hard to believe. So that's not going to happen. Right. But what if you get somebody who has more money than Trump, who's actually hard to believe, you know, more sinister, but more intelligent, that's willing to actually open a book, study exactly how our shortcomings in dealing with the Trump administration existed, expand upon it, and figure out how to take it to the next level, how to destroy our democracy and make our country into a, you know, into a dictatorship or a monarchy. I will say I'm very concerned about the next Trump myself, Michael. I think a very valid concern. And you know what? What I think a lot, the, the message that a lot of people are taking from this is that it's easy to get away with it, right? It's easy to get away with things. You're not. There's not going to be an investigation. There's not going to be justice. I will say, as as somebody who was a white collar prosecutor for a long time, uh, it doesn't surprise me that somebody committing white collar crime can get away with it. Sadly, it's it's it can it's easier to get away with things than you might think. But but the president of the United States uh, committing all of the at times atrocities, at times. Just, uh, you know, very highly concerning question, relaxed. I'm surprised that Democrats don't have more energy for investigating what happened and or in the, in the new administration doesn't have that energy. And I really think a lot of it has to come down to politics. It must be this idea of they got to turn the table, got to look forward, got to focus on their agenda. And I get it. Maybe that's what people want. Maybe that's what voters want. But for the long run, I do think accountability is really important. Yeah, me too. And Renato, let me thank you so much uh, for joining us today on Maya Culpa. Insight, more insight and more insight. There's still so much going on, so much damage caused by the previous administration. So appreciate you very much in coming on and expressing your views. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. You got it, pal. And now for today's Maya Culpa. In thinking about Donald Trump's children and whether or not they would flip on their father, It reminds me just what a sick and dysfunctional family he created. So here's the thing. I don't care who you are. If you're a father who truly loves his children and cares about his family, you would never put your kids in a position where they had to make that choice in the first place. You would do anything in your power to keep them safe and out of harm's way, even if that meant taking the rap and going to prison. There would be absolutely no debate. If they said, Michael, it's you or your kids, I wouldn't hesitate for a fucking second to sacrifice myself to save them, and I do it again and again. It's exactly what I did when they decided that they were going to indict my wife as a co-conspirator or take the plea. That doesn't make me a hero, though. Any halfway decent person who actually had a fucking shred of empathy and love for their children would do the same thing. It's an instinct that is part of the very core of your being, like a wolf protecting its pups. But Trump, for reasons that I cannot diagnose, lacks that sense of duty to his children or family. I have said it time and time again, Donald Trump cares only about one person, and that's Donald fucking Trump. He wouldn't hesitate for a moment to send them all up river for a decade if it meant saving his own skin. 
And that's where you get to the true sickness of Trump. Here's a man so wrapped up in his own narcissism and sense of importance that he truly believes his children should serve time in prison to save him. I can't fathom that notion. Most people can't because they're not sick and twisted human beings. But here we are. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea Culpa, nothing but the truth.